0: Well, we're very glad to have you here. This is uh, Emily Brown, who I have known for, gosh, about five years now. I think we, we might have met either at an Incremental Development Alliance event or uh, Congress for the New Urbanism. But Emily is uh, an economic development consultant who really specializes in sort of the um, the integration of what we might call placemaking, um, small-scale real estate development, and entrepreneurial-focused economic development. So, a lot of the way that that we think is is how Emily thinks as well. Um, Emily runs Brown Oak Ec- Economic Development, I believe it's called. Uh, she is a board member of the Incremental Development Alliance. Of course, last week we spoke with Monty Anderson, who is a co-founder of that, and uh, she has some very very interesting things to say. She's, she's done work for the, uh, the IEDC, which is the International Economic Development Organization, and has, has worked for some local municipalities as well, and I think brings in a perspective that, that few, if any, other people bring in. So, Emily, we're very happy to, to have you on the PlaceCast, and uh, thank you for taking the time to talk with us.
1: Thank you, guys. I really appreciate you inviting me on.
0: Wonderful. So the last time we talked, we were kind of, uh, we kind of talked informally and we're having such interesting conversations that I was, I, I just kept saying, we, we have to just stop talking right now and, and make sure to record this um, because you had such fascinating things to say. And I know right now your, uh, your economic development consultancy is, is working with several communities and, and I know one of the things, probably the biggest question right now is, is how can we take these these very local economic development efforts and make sure that they're they're relevant um, to what's happening right now, um, and and certainly you know how communities can ramp up in the aftermath. But I know that you've been uh, doing some research with with economic development organizations that are actually able to help um, communities sort of respond medically um, to this. And, and you have some kind of interesting comments on why they're in a good position to, to do that um, and why they might be in, in kind of a unique position relative to cities to really get ramped up. Um, can you share some, some kind of examples of what you've seen and some of your thoughts on that?
1: Sure. Yeah. So, one thing to note is that all economic development organizations are their own deals. They, they all uh, kind of have their own focuses. Um, I, I think that the, the general focus is building businesses, attracting businesses, and, and uh, supporting entrepreneurs as they start businesses, but they, they can do that at any level, from local municipal level, from Main Street level, to kind of the, the 11 to 9 county regional level to state level. Um, So we see a lot of interesting responses as far as collaboration at the regional level. One that has come to mind that is a a little bit more COVID focused is um, The Right Place, which is out of Grand Rapids, Michigan. Grand Rapids uh, is famous for their beer. Um, They're also a manufacturing hub, especially for furniture. And um, in the time since um, the United States has been experiencing this crisis, they have used their great relationships with manufacturers. They actually have an, an in-house um, manufacturing extension partnership, which is funded by a federal program, but kind of run through their organization. So that they already have a mandate to help support manufacturers. And they've taken that relationship that, that they've built to um, kind of help uh, connect manufacturers with the healthcare industry in their community to um, build up the supply of personal protective equipment, and I think that that's is this is an in- interesting example because a lot of times we see economic development organizations as more of the attraction, um, and, you know, that's what they get in the paper for, they get the big ribbon cutting with the mayor, but in this case, it's it's really those relationships that they've built over years and years and years of supporting these manufacturers of being there for them, of offering them, um, you know, it, helping to advocate for them to have good financial terms with banks and actually like connecting them with uh, federal resources. They've built these relationships. And because of those relationships, they were able to reach out to them and say, okay, what kind of PPE can you manufacture, um, talk to di- different manufacturers and, and balance the the types of uh, materials that are needed so that they can kind of trade materials around, and then also because they 're a regional entity, they can work with the hospitals, work with the universities, and talk to them about um, what is needed so they're they 're really serving in that role of um, the the linchpin in between those those institutions um, and I think that that 's a very interesting role that we don 't think about for economic development uh, organizations very much if you 're kind of on the outside of the, the economic development world. You don't necessarily know about all of the, the relationships that have been being built and um, all of the collaboration that's taking place because you don't see that uh, as much as you see the, the big flashy stuff that, that makes the news. So I, I, I think that that's happening all over the United States. That um, And I, I have a couple of other cool examples that I can share with you, but the role of economic development organizations right now is to be that collaborator to be the almsbudden between the um private and the and the public and um you know and and to understand where resources are flowing. They they have that understanding. They've they've built that up over uh years and years of, of relationships. So it's an interesting time to be in economic development. It's always an interesting time to be in economic development, but um this is particularly um, challenging and, and and requires some leadership that um, people are really stepping into.
0: That's really interesting. Um, one of the things, you know, first of all, here in, in Texas, when someone says you know economic development organization, they we tend to think either of of you know an EDC, which is you know sort of a, a semi independent organization at the municipal level, or an economic development department. Within the city, mm-hmm. and a lot of times the the wrap at least locally on these organizations is that they tend to be overly focused on attracting businesses from the outside and not enough on retaining and supporting what they have, but you have obviously a more national perspective, and you have a, a broader perspective on other types of organizations that fall under the umbrella of, of economic development organizations um, and you had a little bit different perspective on that uh can you share with me kind of the the broader kind of ten thousand uh, foot view about what um what type of organizations fall under the umbrella of economic development organizations and how they might tend to work differently than that that sort of stereotype that we might have
1: sure when I talk to people about economic development who um, don't, haven't heard of it before, I say that it's a three-legged stool that's not often heard kind of refrain about economic development. The first is business retention and expansion, which um, making sure that your existing businesses are staying there, maintaining their workforce, and have the capacity to expand. Second is entrepreneurship, making sure your businesses are starting, that, that startup businesses have resources. Third is attraction and marketing. That's what you hear about most from the economic development field. And that is the the part that kind of, I feel like people tend to have more opinions about that because it's a lot of incentives. It's a lot of, you know, trade shows and um, showcasing your business advantages. So you've got the three-legged stool of economic development, which uh, every economic development organization should really be Considering all three of those as, as a way to shore up the economy for their their uh, community. But I would say underneath that, there's kind of like the foundation of workforce. And that has really changed over the the, the past, oh, I don't know, 50 years. Because um, it used to be that companies located in places that had excellent natural resources, paper companies moving to places where there was timber, for example. Right. That's why Pittsburgh is a steel town that's where I live Pittsburgh we're still town because we've got the ore and then we've got the coal from West Virginia but today that that undergirding is the workforce so that's my spiel on mm-hmm. what economic development organizations do um it is ideal if all if all four of those things are considered in your mission of your organization, but that's not necessarily how it works, for better or for worse. Sometimes there's going to be you know, a, a hierarchy or a, a number of different types of economic development organizations in a community. Your main street organization, those are to, your main street or bid, mm-hmm. those are going to be focused just on supporting the, the businesses in your, your main street area. And those are funded differently. They're funded from the businesses themselves paying into that. And then your organization is looking for funding from foundations or from um, federal programs to bring that funding to that specific area. So that's going to be a little bit more focused on the, the urbanism that you and I like to, to advocate for. But then the um, like the chambers of commerce, or the more uh, public-private organizations that you mentioned, like an EDC in Texas, that's going to be a, a, a lot more focused, usually, on uh, business attraction. Especially those public-private partnerships, those larger regional entities, um, they're going to be, you know, looking to um, coordinate with government entities to put together incentive packages to bring in that that type of, um, you know kind of splashy uh, business, but uh, it varies very differently across all the different states because in Texas, Texas is known for being a business-friendly state. You know, it's a right-to-work state. It's uh, got a, a huge, you know, it's, it's endowed by the governor to do to to kind of have a pot of money to offer to companies to bring businesses in. And that's just the way it's always been. Like economic development in Texas is strong. Um, It's done the way it's done in Texas. And it's it's focused on these, like, these attractions. It's different in Michigan because Michigan is fighting to keep its manufacturers going. It's different in Pennsylvania. I mean, Pennsylvania as a state is very different. We, we have manufacturers that we're, we're fighting for to keep going. And we have some really innovative programs, especially in Pittsburgh, between the Manufacturing Extension Partnership, which shout out to Catalyst Connection, they're really good. Um, and they, they work with um, the uh, tech Hubs and the, the and the tech incubators out of CMU and Pitt to connect the the different um, technologies that are coming out of those schools to the the, the manufacturers. So um, we I would say in Pittsburgh are a more innovative. We try to be a more innovative focused economic development organization um, as far as like catalyst connection, the the MEP here. I, I feel like I'm getting down into a rabbit hole, but basically okay. what, what you get is like this the um, the Main Street organizations—you uh, get your Chambers of Commerce, which are really good at like providing networking and uh, business retention because everybody is kind of supporting each other, and they can they can get groups of people together to talk about specific industries and how we can support these specific industries. Um, you've got the universities that do kind of the innovative stuff. You've got the um, chamber, or you've got the the larger. Uh, public-private partnerships at the regional level that are driving more of the attraction. They're going to more of the trade organizations. But, um, you know, everybody, ideally, everybody's working together. Let me give you a good example. In Indianapolis, um, okay. the Indy Chamber, a uh, really collaborative organization. Um, they are a public-private organization. They're, they're supporting a larger region than just the, the city of Indianapolis, They've actually put together. They've they've gone to all of the corporate entities in Indianapolis um, as this COVID uh, has taken hold and um, raised a ten million dollar bridge loan fund that um, is offering five to ten thousand dollar grants or or loans to small businesses in the interim bef- between when small businesses are really starting to feel a crunch and when they can get their SBA loans. So. That's a a good example of one uh, of those larger organizations that can work at several different levels to, you know, because they're going to be working with those larger private entities and Mm -hmm. and going to the universities, the um, companies and um, the philanthropies and and accessing that fund. But then they're going to have to work through the main streets, the bids, and the small business associations to to get that money out
0: one of the things that I'm interested in that that we might have to to um, and then I think Christopher's got a question, but that we might have to, to kind of learn from other states um, is that you know we have this in our state we have these economic development organizations that are very, very well funded um, and that in many cases are are set up to give large incentives that have, um, questionable return on investment in many cases. And I think that's, that's going to be more questionable as the the need for supporting, uh, entrepreneurship and retention becomes, becomes bigger than ever. Um, so yeah, one of the things I'd, I'd like to, to look at are, you know, how, how can these people that have a lot of money figure out ways to filter things so they might be able to help small businesses, maybe, whether that's the the mom and pop organization um, on Main Street, or maybe, you know, the, the people who have 20 employees that, that could use different types of support in order to help reach the next level.
2: Yeah. Well, I wanted to go back because we've talked about a lot of stuff um, and thrown out a bunch of acronyms that I don't know if everybody's familiar with. I had to look up PPE, which is, by the way, is personal protective equipment, which oh, is yeah. sort of the, the sort of thing <laughs> that we got, uh, you know, you know, a month ago. I don't think any of us would have really, that would have been necessarily in our wheelhouse, but now that's kind of on everybody's brains right now. Um, You talked about bids and PIDs, and uh, for those people that aren't familiar with it, a bid is more extra tax levied on businesses, but it goes into building up the businesses so that eventually they'll have greater sales down the road and then that tax will be repaid. A PID is like a little bit different in that you can also have it for a downtown, but it's more on the property itself and the improvement of the land. So you got public improvement districts. Uh, I wanted to talk, Emily, about you mentioned workforce. And I think as you mentioned, like over the last 50 years, that's really what's evolved. Um, you talked about the schools and the universities and how that kind of goes into it. What role do you kind of see in the, in uh, with a, with a, with a localized um, government or localized economic development and incentivize, how important do you think it is for homegrown people that grew up in a town? Because if you go to school somewhere, you can kind of go anywhere you want to now, right? So you kind of, you have to create these Playgrounds or these places for people where they want to come back to, right? Is that that is that is it? Which what's kind of the focus with workforce right now with how you're getting um, some of these um, the the, t- the talent? How you're getting the the, the workforce that's going to get the higher paying jobs? That's going to be able to support the tax base to support the improvements that you're wanting to make. Like when we're talking workforce, what are, do you, do you kind of have a, a a top three approach or is there is there what's, what, what's some elaboration on kind of the workforce and how we're looking at it? And is this going to change anything with that?
1: That's a really good question. Um, when we think about maintaining a workforce, um, or attracting, uh, a workforce to be innovative or creative in your economy, you're going to want younger people. You're going to want people who have gone to good schools that, um, hopefully move back to your your town so there are some interesting programs out there that address that specific need to have people either stay in your town or move back to your town um you see this in i think tulsa has done some uh, tulsa and vermont have both done um, interesting Incentive programs for people to move to their communities um, for for remote workers to come to Those places and and work from those places um, And and you get a ten thousand dollar bonus like basically those are um, They're they're, they're moving the incentive from giving it to companies to giving it to individual families and people Um, So that's that's a very direct way um and a more indirect way is what we talk about with placemaking, um, and uh, in my former work at, at the consulting firm here in Pittsburgh called Fourth Economy, um, I worked at a, uh, I, I was uh, actually looking at a, a workforce program for a small town in the middle of Pennsylvania, um, St. Mary's and, and the surrounding area, and they had a big powdered metal manufacturing cluster and they were finding that um, young people who were moving away uh, from their community were not moving back. And if they did stay there, they didn't want to work in the powdered metal manufacturing where they started a shift at like 10 at night and made $15 an hour. Um, and that was the way that it had always been done. And, 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 and there was a need to reconfigure what the Benefit of working in those places would be, and some of the, you know, some of that would be on the the manufacturers themselves, on the employers, you know, looking at the compensation package. But then some of it was on the community, like how can we build on the heritage that we have? Um, they had a, a a really strong brewing heritage, actually. Straub's beer uh, is located in Saint Mary's, and um, it's a big German beer town. Like, how can you build on that? And make people feel um, proud about their heritage, give people, uh, young people, a place to gather. You know, of course, these like places to gather and and places to meet people um, is important. But then the other aspect of it is where are these people gonna live? Because people think about placemaking and, you know, what we talk about with incremental development a lot is creating spaces for uh, people to get a toehold into a neighborhood like how can you um if if you know you're a single mother and you want to come live in a neighborhood with great schools if there are smaller buildings if there are duplexes fourplexes um smaller uh kind of missing middle housing then then you can get an entree into that that um that neighborhood into that school system into working your way up into a higher economic class so you you, we see that obviously in cities but we don't really talk about it very much at the the um rural level and i think that that's really interesting um rural places mainly have single family houses for sale and even if they're affordable single family houses you have to put in a lot of money to make it livable they've all got like furnishing from the 70s you don't want to you know buy a house for fifty thousand dollars and then put that much into it especially if you're a young person who doesn't know if they're going to stay there they're just going to try it out um so so actually helping these smaller places uh transition into that middle missing middle housing i think is a really good workforce retention strategy
2: yeah it, you brought up so many interesting things there um talked about the reconfiguration. Focusing on rural areas, you know, with what's going on right now with the COVID outbreak or the coronavirus outbreak, I would say um, I think there's two things that can happen. I think one is there's going to be a small percentage of people that want to move to more rural areas because of this. And then also, if you have a place where a lot of businesses have left, you're going to have people that no longer see the value and maybe staying there and would be looking to relocate. Other than that, though, I think once we're through it and I want your feedback on this, but that's just kind of my opinion of the people who are going to kind of move or relocate or reconfigure their lives are going to be people that are like, you know what, I want to go to a more rural setting and or people that are like, you know what, my town's changed a lot. Uh, I no longer have that bakery that I really love, no longer have that restaurant we always used to go to on Friday nights. Do you see that's kind of the the, the big changes that are going to happen? And then obviously, like you're talking about, it's a really good point for these capturing these this small. It's not going to be a huge part of the population, but I think some of the population is going to decide, you know what? It'd be nice to take my family to a more rural area or if your area has been you know, hit devastatingly from an economic perspective um, from this crisis, then they might be looking for a new place and having some of these missing middle type properties in a more rural setting could be a very attractive um, and lucrative idea for a lot of these cities.
1: Sure. I mean, I always have this idea of like people who are living in New York or Dallas or San Francisco who are sous chefs in restaurants. And they went to culinary school, they're well-trained, they've worked under a lot of chefs, um, but they're never going to have the connections to open up their own restaurant. I think that doing, like, this might be really good after COVID-19, is, like this pandemic is over, to like target those sous chefs, those people right. who um, have been entering home brewing contests, who, um, you know, sell their pepperoni rolls or whatever on Instagram, Everybody's making sourdough bread and selling it on Instagram. Like, it would be a, a really interesting marketing plan for human capital to target those people who don't, who didn't lose their shirt when their restaurant closed down and try to get them to come to your town and support them with the type of resources from spaces like we talk about, you know, the incremental. Um, build up of spaces, uh, you know, you you know, lure a sous chef and say, hey, we've got uh, a six month uh, free rent on a food truck for you here in St. Mary's, Pennsylvania. And, um, you know, we'll let you stay in this, um, reduced rent in in this small apartment for for that time. So it's kind of like an incubator program for people who are, making it in the big city but not um, making their dreams come true and you can kind of lure them into these smaller towns with the um, idea that, you know, our businesses, we're going to, like those small towns that everywhere, everybody's going to take a hit on these small businesses. The ones that are going to survive are the ones that have been, um, you know, financially smart for the past several years and are really strong. They'll come back but the ones that are uh, folding. They're going to have a workforce that's kind of like churning, and and these smaller towns, you know, they have a real value proposition to that workforce that's um, been spit out by the restaurant industry, by the service industry. That you have an opportunity to kind of snap them up.
0: You know, a couple couple interesting things about that um, that uh, I've been I've been thinking about. Um, one is that this crisis and the aftermath of it are going to redefine what we mean when we think about incubation. Um, Because in many ways, it was like, you know, you have, when we thought about, you know, let's have something where, you know, like a, a, you know, a Grow DeSoto project here that that Monty worked on that I know that you're familiar Mm with, um, or uh, the Tyler Station project also in this area, where you're saying, you know, this is a person who makes fantastic cupcakes or they can make great tacos but they don't know anything about running a business they don't have a lot of capital they don't have a a lot of customers and so how do we start something small now all of a sudden we're going to be in a situation where it's like this is a person who had a successful bakery for 20 years they had six employees now it's just them and now, you know, we could maybe, maybe get some federal money, maybe get some investors, um, but we're looking at, you know, whatever it might be, we're going to do a pop-up event or we're going to have something and this person's going to be doing their barbecue, say, um, once a week you know, or, or once a month. So it becomes incubation with people with, with proven models. Um, which I, I think is, is is very interesting, and I think we 're almost going to have to come up with with a different word or a different framework with, for like how do you start someone up again who had who had nothing um, A second thing that that and, and maybe i 'd like to hear your perspective on on either of these things I think that it, fundamentally these cities and towns are going to have a few different ways of, of looking at the aftermath of this crisis. Um, because you, you talk to these small towns and about the opportunities that they had. And a lot of some of these places have kind of not given a lot of love to their places, but some of them have spent a lot of money and resources. Um, and, and they're going to find themselves, I think, in, in a crisis, um, among other things, because of maybe people changing habits or some of these businesses going out. Um, so I think that some places are going to try to go back to the status quo and kind of plan as if this didn't happen. Um, but I think other places are going to say, well, we don't have the money to worry about things like bringing businesses back or having a downtown. Uh, you know, we can't do what we did before. So therefore, if we can't spend millions of dollars to revitalize this downtown, we're just going to have to accept the fact that it and the businesses that it were in, we're, we're dead. So we're not going to be bringing in any sous chefs. Um, obviously, you and, and I and a lot of other people are arguing for a third model where we're saying make investments in your town, but you can't pour money down a hole. You have to make some, you know, incremental investments that have a high ROI. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think that the communities that you, are you talking to a lot of communities and, and economic development organizations that see that? Is everybody kind of too exhausted right now and trying to figure out the next steps? Where Where do you think the future is in terms of kind of, marketing in a way that third option to cities and to economic development organizations
1: that's a really interesting question um i think from a macroeconomic development perspective um so i'll i'll kind of introduce it one of the reasons why i i really believe in the model of incremental development um that we work with an incremental development alliance is because the um Real estate holdings in this country are are held by millionaires and billionaires and hedge funds um, through REITs, um, and the more that we can make those uh, holdings. Uh, I'm going to interrupt you real quick. Yes. Can you
0: can you just say what a REIT is real quick? And then yeah, sorry,
1: I'm like being very jargony today. It's
0: okay. Uh, well, that's good. <laughs> real estate,
1: um, real estate investment trust. Yeah, which is um, what hedge funds invest in. Uh, you know with pensions and and you know it, they're they're good bets uh they're they're made up of strip malls and all of the stuff that we tend to fight against but they're they're generally good bets um and and more and more they can support uh large scale urbanism but anyway um I believe that the more capital is focused and and held by the upper class, the less people on the, um, the ground who, who make up neighborhoods will care about their neighborhoods. And I believe that for real estate and I also believe that for business. So so what we're up against right now is that if the coronavirus um, shuts down all of our small businesses, then all of that that, that that demand for those services and that product is not gonna go away. It's gonna shift into the the people who already have a lot of money to the Amazon, to Target. And we need to have those places but um, the more that our our collective capital shifts into those pockets, the less opportunity there is for people from you know, small uh, beginnings to reach in, and, and, and achieve their own sustainability. And um, I think that you know there's a couple of ways for people who don't have a lot of money, to, to get into a, a legacy business being built and that is through businesses or real estate holdings so you know looking at it from an incremental development lens like how can we move um how, how can we make the argument that we have to sustain businesses for communities that are saying like we can't this is too hard we just need to give up like we're going to be fine with the the major grocery stores and what we have here um I, I think that we can't let that happen because um these businesses that that you're giving up on they've poured a lot of money and heart and um it, you know their whole life into the businesses that they have so and they're the people who are like on every committee and you know, like volunteering at the soup kitchen and, um, supporting their little league teams and things like that. They're, they're giving back to the community in ways that your, your large target is not going to. Um, so you're going to, you're, you're really going to take a lot. I, you're, you're going to take a lot of opportunity away from people if you, if you, stop supporting these small businesses but you're also going to take a lot of authenticity and heart out of your community and then it's just going to be like everywhere else and people are going to try and find that place that feels like some place that they can live um and you you really risk kind of the that cycle of the of, you know your place becomes like everywhere else your workforce leaves for somewhere that feels like somewhere so i guess that's my that's my overarching kind of spiel on that
2: Yeah, you brought up uh, something that I like to harp on a lot, Um, and you talked about how if capital just gets held at the top, um, I have no problem with millionaires and billionaires when people say, oh, Bill Gates has all this money, and you know, Jeff Bezos has all this money. It's like, well, I'm using Windows right now. And I've, we've all probably all ordered stuff on Amazon in the last month. I'm assuming, well, not everyone, but a lot of people have, right? So we use those services all the time. They created services that we all use that make our lives a little bit easier rather than having to go to the grocery store. That being said, the problem occurs whenever they, we give them money and then they just hold on to it, right? When that money doesn't get pumped back into the economy and it just gets held because they get concerned or they get afraid. And they just put it, you know, in in a place that does not get pumped back in to the local economy and get down to, like you said, the people that are on the ground doing a lot of stuff. That's where the problem occurs because it doesn't do it doesn't do anything for the economy when it just sends it a bank account somewhere. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, um, I think it's that's that's a hugely important point. Another thing I I think is interesting that, that we're kind of all talking about or that you're definitely alluding to here. Is, you know when you talk about those the, the three legs of the stool you know one of them of being business retention and expansion and how important that is and also the entrepreneurship and giving resources for those things to happen those are going to be vitally important moving forward um, i do think there's going to be some businesses that emerge out of this the other thing is it's going to be harder than ever this whole attracting and marketing to businesses i think is going to be more difficult than it's ever been because everyone's going to have some empty spaces and so everyone's going to be trying to attracting different businesses in. And I don't think that it's gonna be easier than before. I think it's gonna be harder than before. And the price point for these places that, like, you know, Amazon was basically like, give me money, tell me what you'll give me to go places. It's gonna be more expensive now paying for, not necessarily Amazon, but whoever's expanding is gonna, has there's a, there's a higher demand for them because there's gonna be more empty spaces. And so there'd be more places that are like, please come here, please come here. And you're gonna have, Excess competition on trying to get some of these places to expand to your area and so focusing on those other two points is so vitally important i think especially in the wake of this um and and i think the people that do it the, the cities that do it right are g- going to be at a huge advantage because they're going to help sustain and create like you said that heart that culture that heritage that little ecosystem that makes more sense than just having someone that's already got something they're just going to expand and just kind of take their little and de- deploy their stuff there but that doesn't that doesn't like you said they're not on the committees they haven't been there it's not not to say that people aren't going to get hired in that town for it but it's it's different when you're when you're grown it is more difficult i think one of the things that we don't like to talk about or maybe we avoid talking about the reason i think a lot of cities don't like to do it is it, it takes more time um, to sit there and you know, water the plant than to just go buy it at the store. To go from like a seedling or it's like a middle-sized plant, you, know, you, gotta, you gotta nurture it. It takes time and it takes resources and it takes effort. Whereas sometimes we just wanna go get a transplant and get the big tree and put it in a spot. And, uh, but that, that costs a lot more and uh, it's, it's, not the same, it's not the same situation. But that's not necessarily a question, but it's more common, I guess, on what you've been saying.
0: Let me let me ask let me ask this is so if you're let's say let's say you are um, let's say you were advising uh, an economic development organization and they've kind of been tooled almost exclusively to this attraction model, um, which it, and maybe they've looked at the numbers and they've said, gosh, we're you know, we're paying these maybe industries to come into town, but it's not a clear return on investment to our taxpayers. Right. So you're you're seeing a lot of companies shrink go out of business, this might be the moms and pops that we love so much. It also might be uh, you know, a little bit bigger organizations, but but everybody's in trouble and you realize that you need to focus on you know, retaining your business and entrepreneurship. Um, and you don't really have a lot of direction because you've, you've been doing things a certain way for a long time. Um, you have to, adv- or the, the city doesn't, the economic development organization doesn't. How would you advise them on some steps that they can take that they can start to to right ship what are some things that they could start doing in the next couple of months to point things in a better direction
1: yeah that's a that's a good question um i think that in my experience when cities or economic development organizations call economic development consultants it's when they are facing a problem that they are not familiar with because they. They'll just keep doing the things that they've been doing and and measuring themselves by the metrics they have been. And um, when those metrics start to falter and then they realize, oh, the problem is not that we're not offering big enough incentives. The problem is that we don't have people. Um, Then they call the consultant and say, we need people. And then the consultant comes in and says, okay, well, like, what are you doing? And it usually turns out that all of their metrics and all of their... um, Understanding of what economic health is is oriented towards uh, growth and increase in jobs, and um, you know those kind of traditional metrics that are just—they're uh, not, not going to serve us very well, um, especially as we recover from this. Um, so, uh, I think that one thing is that people need to can look at their values and, and understand. Um, as a city, as a community, what their values are, and then get everybody on board with what those are. So um, saying, you know, we want to have a sustainable economy is a value. And um, what a sustainable economy might be is, you know, not a lot of economic or job growth, um, but it could be that the GDP per capita is increasing. Um, It could be that um, we have a livable wage in this community, so understanding like, what your values are, what your metrics are going to be, and then um, working backwards and understanding how you get to those um, more successful metrics, and it might be different than what you've done in the past. Um, one of the things that I like to harp on because of my experience with the Incremental Development Alliance is um, looking at your business uh, regulations and and seeing if you allow for food trucks, seeing if you allow for... Um, the kind of spaces that allow, uh, entrepreneurs to grow their, their businesses. It's great if you have resources and money coming to entrepreneurs, but if you don't have like storefronts or like allow for pop-ups or allow for carts on the street, then you're not providing, uh, like, like this, the the material for, for them to, to take root. Um, so I always look at that, um and and i think there are also ways to you know kind of uh simultaneously chart the resources and the the funding that is coming in um you know like talking to your banks and and explaining to them um that uh you know they can work together with pub, private public entities to offer loan guarantees to smaller businesses and and really expanding that um you know startup funding that that the funding that gets you from startup to Um, you know like real big person like bank funding like there's like a mezzanine layer in between there Um, so so, you know you kind of have to do those in tandem Um, and then I think that there's another layer of it which is um, something that we see a lot in the Rust Belt and I I work I live in the Rust Belt and I work in the Rust Belt is like do we believe that we deserve this is this some like can we have nice things and that's a challenge especially for people who have gone through um several downturns in the economy people who have um experienced the the steel mills leaving industry leaving um basically like everybody telling them that they were ugly and not cool and and leaving town along with all their kids and then, you know, trying to, to bring a a new generation into like, yeah, like this, like we're valuable. Like we have interesting things happening here. I'm from West Virginia originally. And um, I see a lot of my friends who are running cool businesses like cideries and um, you know, farm to table restaurants trying to convince and, and to, to show that they're, uh, heritage and and their the uniqueness of those places is not something to be ashamed of, but something to embrace. Mm. I
0: you know I always there's there's a story I always like to tell because um, it, it it kind of illustrates how some of these fine grained placemaking things are are such an answer to to some of these these economic development issues and and I know you're kind of um, you know, you're kind of on that. You're you're in the Rust Belt, but you're also like in Appalachia. You're kind of you know in, in a place that that intersects um, two swaths of the country that are dealing in in some ways with with similar issues. Um, and this was a community that we were working in that that you know when you talk to people, it was like they were losing a lot of the young, talented, uh, or at least educated people who were not coming back. And, of course, they were talking about jobs, which is part of it, or they were talking about maybe social attitudes, which was part of it. Um, But we were at a table. We had all of the the honor students who were graduating the next year. And we went through the table, um, and all of them were were planning to go to either uh, University of Texas Austin A&M or UT Arlington um, after they they left. And we went through and said, you know, who's going to come back? And, like, one person's like, you know, I think I'll I'll probably – come back to raise my family and then Mm -hmm. and then i'm out of here yeah um so seven people are not coming back and so i said just out of whim i said okay if this place if our if your downtown were hopping how many of you would would seriously consider coming back and eight hands shot up i was like what and, and I'm like, so wait, so like, there's still the same job situation. There's still the same social attitudes. Everything is still the same, except this downtown is hopping, and everyone's like, yeah. And one of the person, one of the people is like, I'm bored here. I'm not coming back if I'm bored here. There's no way. And, and it was like, wow, like this, you know, this is common sense. Like if you're, if you're, you know, do, do we remember when we were 18? We didn't want to be bored, but. That gets missed and it's just like, well, you know, these places in maybe, you know, West Virginia or these places in maybe the small towns in the Rust Belt, um, they've decided that they can't bring people back. And, you know, so if you look at some of these things like placemaking, it's like having a great place. This is a way to take pride in your community if you do it the right way. Um, This is a way to keep people there. This is a way to to get visitors. And this is real economic development and, you know, to me, and I think one of the things that people like yourself and us are going to be able to help with is that they've they've associated it with something be, that's being very expensive. And it's a counterintuitive argument to say, you know, eventually you're going to have infrastructure expense. But we're actually telling you start with the things that you can do now, which are less expensive. And if you don't do those things, the, the other things the other things aren't going to work. So um, I think if if you haven't done that in communities, I think that's an interesting experiment to do with your honor students. Uh, They'll they'll shock you. I've also talked to, um, for example, students at a community college that when we we were working on a a proposal and I said to the students, how many of you would be likely if if you had a more vibrant campus to stay in this college for another year? And all of the students raised their hand. Um, So I think that if people see how important this is to young people, um, then it becomes something that's not just a nice th- to have, but it becomes something that if you want if you want your grandchildren to stay here, or if you want this place to have a future, that it's going to become essential. Um, and I know you brought up Grand Rapids and I know that's a place where they've they've realized that and they've done a lot to to respond to that. I don't know if you've talked to other people who who because people are going to have to see somehow that having a place that people want to be in is is necessary to recover you know not only financially but but to recover in and i think a lot of other ways you have a place that people can give people hope help them recover psychologically and socially and and in other ways for that so i don't know if you did have anything to to add to that or any experiences that you have that might have been similar
1: yeah i mean i um just i I think it's so interesting that you bring up that your experience in talking with honor students because Uh, What I have experienced a lot in helping communities is that people who are in charge of communities who are in their 60s um, say things like, well, for example, a town I worked in in West Virginia said this guy who was like president of the board or president of the council said, well, once we get these timber jobs back, um, our our kids are going to move back from North Carolina back to West Virginia because the jobs will be here, and and they'll move back for that. And I was just like, y- "Have you talked to your children lately? Like about what they want? Like you're not like y- y- here's a project which is basically a marketing project. And the first, the first uh, tenant of marketing is ask your customers what they want. Your customers are your children. Your children don't care about timber jobs. They actually care about having a good brewery within walking distance. So. Ask your customers what they want. Ask your children and your grandchildren what they want, and don't write them off don't don't scoff at the the need for you know authentic places to congregate um, i mean that that's maybe out of touch at this point, um, but I think that that's probably an important thing for us to keep in mind as we uh are working in this economy post COVID-19 is like, we should probably, you know, you know, we have a lot of ideas about what people want. Um, but we're going to have to do some soul searching and we're going to have to do some asking to say, okay, like we just went through this really difficult time. Do you still feel Do you feel safe going outside? Like, what do you want in your community? Do you want, um, an experience like the DeSoto market where you can you know, safely go up to a window, order, and take your food, and and sit at a picnic table that's been uh, sanitized. And there's also people sitting at picnic tables that are six feet away from you that have been sanitized. Like, is that uh, is that how we begin to get back into building these spaces? Like, what, how, how will people? Uh, we're, it's just going to be uncharted territory. Like, we're going to need to to ask a lot of questions to get back to um some sort of normalcy. Um so I I guess I kinda I, I have COVID nineteen on the brain, I turned it towards that again. <laughs>
2: that's 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 what this is about.
1: Yeah.
0: This is this is this is all about that. And that's part of the reason why I'm saying like that 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 it might be deprioritized. And you know and 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 you know, to your point it's kind of like you said like this might seem out of touch to, to think about this stuff in, in some way. Um but I think that these these places like they're, they're serving a lot of human needs that are very fundamental, um, whether this is sinking in or not. Um, you know, if 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 you have if you're inside of a room for three months and haven't, you know, so much as shook hands with another human being or sat in front of another human being, um, that's not. That's not the, a, a fluffy problem. That that that's a real right, problem. Yeah. If you are a child who's been locked up and hasn't, you know, and, and you're falling behind on your education, that's going to affect you your entire life. Um, if you, unless you have certain privileges, right, like parents who can who can homeschool you in certain ways. Like we're we're dealing with a lot of things, and you know, people who are are psychologically devastated from this. People who are saying. You know, I, I don't know when this is going to end. And having places that, that help them heal, um, I think that this is really, really important. And I think that right now we're talking about health, and, and which is the most urgent issue, and, and economics, which is probably the second most urgent. But things like the human need to socialize. Um, things like coming back to your downtown and, and not seeing and seeing some continuity, not seeing the diner that was there for a hundred years is, is is never coming back again, and your whole life has been ripped up from you, um, things like figuring out ways that that we can um, kind of reintegrate people in the society, many of whom may be kind of under quarantine for i don 't know eight months depending on what their health is i mean I think that that what we have to do. Is is have conversations and understand that that we need to think about the things that are the most urgent, but but these things are are very urgent and um, these are, are basic human needs that I think I think won't go away and I think that we have to figure out how to have that message um, because if all that if all that comes out is is you have a burnt out town but you know the, the COVID crisis has chilled out. I think this is going to be a very difficult experience for a lot of people, and and have and have a lot of aftermath. Um, you know, I think the other thing is that the things that we're talking about, about like how to keep these places, like th- this this is not what's going to be on most people's minds who aren't specialists in this. Like, how do we keep the young people here long term? But it's going to have to be in six months. And right now, I think they're going to have to think, how do we bring back a sense of hope? How do we bring back normality? How do we how do we, you know, kind of make sure that our businesses can survive? But after that, if if your main street was already in trouble and now it's bombed out, I think you're going to have to start thinking, okay, how can we make this a place that people aren't going to flee on their 18th birthday and never come back? That's that's your future and and that's your seed corn. Um, and I think to your point, it's like how do we how do we make that case? And I think one of the most important things about that is that these communities have, been, have internalized the message. To your point, Emily, you've kind of said, well, you know, are, they saying, are they good enough? Communities, even wealthy, successful communities in many cases, have internalized the message that they need to be dependent on federal funds or state funds in order to do anything. Um, you'll talk to a lot of communities that I'll see a dozen things that that they could start with and take steps toward their long-term goals within the next two months with the resources they have, and they'll say, "Well, we're going to wait two years until we have a, a downtown plan, and then we'll start." Or we're gonna we need to raise money for a comprehensive mm, plan. Mm. But what isn't tone deaf is is to say, "How do we start now and then work toward having a plan after we've you know while we're." But but we're taking the steps, and then the plan is actually going to be meaningful.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: <clears throat> I mean, we got to know where we want to get to. It's not just getting out of this crisis because this crisis will eventually end, right? It's just a matter of setting ourselves up. You know, like I love that idea of the sous chef program, right? Like a, some sort of restart program. But if you want to do that, the time to start planning it is now, not once the crisis ends, right? It's now, so you can start sending people. Hey, have you? lost your job are you closed down would you like to consider because now is the best time to be talking to people about these sorts of things right if they can talk to the the waiters and the waitresses that are like hey look we can move they're going to give us like a package to help us like for the next couple months and then we can get started like i mean you can't wait the more you wait on some of this stuff the worse the harder it's going to be you know just because you can't do some of the, you can't have a, rest, a new restaurant that like actually opens tomorrow, doesn't mean you don't wanna start planning some of these things for you know months down the road whenever they can open. So all these types of ideas and programs need to be begun sooner than later with what's going on right now. And I don't know if everyone's reached the point where that's clicked yet, because I think a lot of people are still kind of in crisis mode um i think we're slowly coming out of that but i mean at the same time it's just i think everybody's struggling at least i can say personally i'm struggling with it and almost everyone i've talked to in some way is just like i thought this was gonna be a lot easier (laughs) and it's not it's not fun you know i like the things rick was talking about that are just like the little things that affect us on a on a strange you know strange level where it's just like the human interaction is you know it's all through screens now most or mostly through screens except for you know the same smaller group of people that you that that you live around or with or or what so yeah it's uh there's a lot it's a really interesting time that's for sure i that's that's not a kind way to put it but it is what, what what's the what's the china what's the chinese proverb rick or the
0: May you live an interesting time yeah I was actually when you, you were talking about how this was an interesting time, and I was yeah, actually uh, it, yeah. thinking of thinking of bringing that up emily when when you said that when you said that before you know it's been we've we've been spending as much time as possible as as we have um, you know when we're not focused on just a, kind of restructuring our projects and, and delivering our projects. Um, I've been spending most of my time talking to people who are either, you know, city managers or other people, you know, like yourself who are consultants Um, and just trying to kind of figure out the mood because it feels like it changes, you know, on a daily basis Um, and and just kind of planting a lot of seeds. Um, I think I think the conversations that I'm having, I mean, I think that cities are starting to see that they're going to have to create a sense of hope. Um, You know, and we're working on things even as simple as starting with with, you know, something like a mural program. And then, as you kind of talked about, Emily, figuring out, you know, how do you start to have social events that are still social distancing? Um, Even looking at things like, you know, as as extreme social distancing as a drive, you know, it's like a drive and pop up movie screen or something like that. Um, What are you based on your clients and based on people you're talking to? Do you think that have you seen a shift in kind of focus right now? Do you do you think that a lot of your clients or prospective clients are really like do you see a lot of like thinking like how are we going to build a sense of hope over the next few months? Or are you talking to a lot of people who seem to still be like focused on the medical crisis and, and and those sorts of things?
1: I think most people in economic development right now are focused on delivering resources to small business. Like that is the, that is the, those are the calls that they're getting from their small businesses. That's the, the immediate need. And, and, and people are, you know, the, the economic developers are getting really desperate calls right now and they're, they're trying their best to meet those needs. Um, I think that going forward, I just, like, in the sphere, like, the larger sphere of the economic development world, I'm seeing, like, um, kind of more interesting, like, more theoretical arguments from, like, Harvard Business Review and the American Enterprise Institute about, like, how can we get people back to work? Um, IEDC, the International Economic Development Council, they just had an interesting webinar with Richard Florida and Steve Pettigo about um, 10 ways for economic developers to, to restart their economy which is all about like how we can retrofit places to um, a- accommodate social distancing and then that's for free on Restore Your Economy their, their website um, but I, I think that know. Anyway, I guess you, I, I hear you talking about city managers and I hear um, I, I, I hear like a, you talking about you know how cities can sometimes get bogged down in like waiting for that. What are we? When are we going to get our comprehensive plan or our our SEDs? Um, SEDs is the comprehensive economic de- development strategies that economic development department or economic development districts do, and and they are not on a local level. Uh, they're they're, they're slow moving bureaucratic processes, and I think that um, from my experience in working with towns and cities. Is that the people who are more um, thinking about, like, what can I do tomorrow? What can I do next week? Um, those are going to be your businesses that are invested, that, that have a lot of capital, that are invested in your community, that are already, you know, giving to the Head Start, giving, um, you know, spaces to, to pop up. So it's going to be, like, major property owners or... Um, I, I guess kind of institutions universities could be in that, but I feel like like universities can be pretty bureaucratic as well. But I would really I th- I think my advice would be to look towards those kind of middle com- middle sized companies that are in your communities. They they're there they're, they're 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 there for better or for worse, and they're thinking about how they can make it in your community. So the more that you talk to them and and. Try to understand how they're thinking and and what they want to do to 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 secure their place in the economy but also what kind of resources they can give to secure everybody else's place I think that that is um maybe a good place to start because you know they they in a lot of places they can't go anywhere they're, that's that's their home they're they're not going to be lured away by the um the incentives to other places so it's a it's a good kind of business retention and expansion project as well as a how do we get ourselves out of this mess project
0: right one of one of the things that that interests me a lot um is is the concept of uh economic gardening um can you tell us about about what that is and, and your thoughts about how that type of approach may or may not be of increased relevance um as we as we go forward in the next several months and so forth
1: sure yeah economic gardening is um a really useful kind of strategic way of thinking about economic development uh, it was developed by chris gibbons who is supported by the Edru- edward lowe foundation and you can find a lot of really good information on the edward lowe foundation website about uh economic gardening Um, It's basically looking at all of the, you know, you kind of like take a slice of all of the companies in your area and you say, okay, these ones are doing really well. And in fact, this one has had like 15% growth, like year after year. This is like a really good company. And you, um, you look at the data. So that's kind of the first step as I understand it. And then, um, you would go to that company and you say, okay, like, what are your plans? Like, and hopefully through your br e business retention and expansion program, you have good re- relationships with all of your companies, but especially the ones that are doing really well. And you say to them, okay, like, what do we need to do to get you to expand? And that can be any sort of thing. Like it could be, um, more, more money, more resources, access to, um, you know these federal loan pro- programs, um, but it could also be when when we talk about placemaking, it could also be looking at um, ridiculous uh, restrictions. Um, for I always like to bring up the example of a charcuterie company that was uh, based in a industrial area, and they opened up a tasting room for their delicious charcuterie, and then were immediately shut down because you can't have an eating establishment in the industrial area. So. You know who could advocate for that is your economic development organization. Um, So with economic gardening, you are using data to direct the type of investments that you want to make. Um, I think that there is another kind of tactic that you can use that's similar to economic gardening, where you look at maybe the, you you have a different set of values about what you're going to invest in and you say, OK, um, instead of investing in the ones that are like highest performing, we're going to invest in the ones that are high performing, but that are, um, you know, in like opportunity zones or in low income census tracts or that are black owned businesses or women owned businesses. Um, and, and you know, the ones that are doing really well in that tier and, and meet those criteria and you can get a chunk of money maybe from your philanthropy or from, um, you know, the, the the federal government has lots of programs to give uh, revolving loans through um, EDA, through the Economic Development Administration, through um, CDBG, you can do that through through the Community Development Block Grants. You can even do it through like the agricultural uh, types of of programs. So um, somehow, you know, you're you got to find some sort of chunk of money to invest in these these businesses that uh, are doing well and that are um, really. You know, ad- adhering to the values that you want for your community. Now, if you want, like I said, Edward Lowe Foundation has the kind of um, essential data-oriented economic gardening, but I would add on that that value piece.
0: Okay, that's that's good feedback. Um, it, since you brought up the the subject of funding, um, I wonder if you have any thoughts about um, maybe highlight from the the CARES Act, which of course is the uh, the recent stimulus bill um, and how uh, how communities may uh, leverage that, or or how they may help to to help some of their uh, maybe small to medium sized businesses leverage those resources that will be available.
1: Sure. So um, the CARES bill, it is a large outlay of money. Um, a lot of it is going to SBA for um, the Paycheck Protection Program which is 350 billion for small businesses um, that had some hang-ups getting rolled out but i think that there's going to be another uh, outlay of money for that program and it, it's a it's a good it's it, it, i think it's a really good stopgap measure for keeping these businesses alive we are also seeing a a, a less drastic amount of money going towards the Community Development Block Grants Program, CDBG. Um, CDBG money is usually used to facilitate planning, comprehensive planning, um, and, and more uh, community-based sort of work rather than economic development. But um, you can use it to do economic development grants and loans for small businesses, um, so that's something that's not well known and um, can uh, really boost uh, that if these companies are or if these communities are already getting CDBG funds you can you can move it around and, and, and give it to small businesses to, to keep them safe um, there is also I have read a lot about it and I'm, I'm not as um, up to date on it but I, I think that you know there's organizations that have read this much more in depth um, IEDC is one there's a lot of stuff on our website about that and, and restore your economy website um, you can also look at the national national legislative conference um, I can provide a list of, for you but I, I think that the main things that we need to know about it and, and keep track of is is the um, paycheck protection program um, and and the outlay for the CDBG
0: Right. And there's there's a lot of people in kind of the incremental development world, including myself, who are, who are focused on um, uh, really understanding the, the CARES Act. So um, I, I will have probably some podcasts specifically about that.
1: Oh, good. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm kind of looking at that as more of like, okay, like how does this compare with other uh, types of legislative actions that have been taken during crises? And it's a big one, but it's, it's maybe not as well thought out. I mean, like you get 350 billion for small businesses, and then you get 500 billion for larger businesses that doesn't have a lot of, uh, oversight. So you can tell it's been influenced by partisan politics. Um, but it is a a huge chunk of money. So, you know, you can only complain so much.
2: I think, I think that's kind of what's happened though, is people are like, well, you know, everyone's getting money. But then when you look at the cost per American for $2 trillion, it's a lot more than the 1200 that everybody's getting from the package. And it's a lot more than, so it's one of those things where I'm a little bit afraid that I think the, the people, it's an election season, so everyone's, uh, both sides are eager to give people money um, whenever the government can give stuff away. I think the federal government can give stuff away. They like to give stuff away. Uh, because it helps them get votes. And, you know, I'm, I definitely think people needed money, but I don't think it was done in the most thoughtful way. And the question wasn't, you know, I know expediency was important, but like you said, just just doing the expediency of the, 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 the base PPP program and maybe some of the other stuff would have been a lot better than putting all the, there's a lot of other money in there that, to me is very questionable, but you know everybody's got an opinion
0: it is it is what it is, but yeah it's there i mean there there's you know my my thinking is we all know that these um, small businesses in so many ways um, you know have a huge social economic and cultural sort of return on investment um and i I feel like those are are not going to get very helped in this to, uh, to the degree that that would be ideal um, but but perhaps uh, you know people like us can help to to uh, leverage it as well as possible to make sure to help some of these small businesses so um, anyway, uh, Emily, this has been a really fantastic conversation, and you know i 've always really appreciated the way that you look at. Sort of the integration of um, economic development with with sort of community development and planning and and um, working on the kind of the fine grain scale of the neighborhood um, I guess i will will leave it with letting you. Um, kind of share with us anything else that, that you'd like that you think would be some uh, one or two good takeaways for um, cities or for economic development organizations that are overwhelmed right now and, and need to figure out what their next steps are.
1: Sure. Um, I think that something that we need to keep in mind as uh, people who work in communities and um, you know, people from from city leadership to planners to urbanists to people who are advocating for small business to people who are advocating for uh, incremental development alliance type of activities is that economic development organizations are a uh, an interconnected and important web of of building communities and and supporting businesses that is throughout the United States and and throughout. Um, Canada Mexico and and beyond um, you know there there's a huge infrastructure that supports economic development organizations and um, the, the the leadership within those organizations is, is really devoted to helping their communities so um, I think that now is the time for for that leadership to look for creative solutions in um, the type of work that uh, we're doing and we're um, kind of, Forward-thinking, uh, incremental, um, on-the-ground work that um, that 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 may not have been at the forefront of of their thinking in the past. You know, um, you know. There's, I think that there's a sense that small businesses, um, you know, they will uh, let us know if they need help, and if they need help. We can help them, we can give them capital. we can um, you know supply them with what they need, but um I think right now it's the time for uh the the economic development field and the and the leadership of of many communities to think about you know kind of getting ahead and and thinking through what a small business might need, like you know, what is the user experience of a small business during this time and and how can we Um, give them resources that will allow them to continue uh, their work because if we don't then uh, our communities are are not going to have the same kind of uh, value proposition for the workforce in the future so it's it's really important to for I think economic development and community leaders to to uh, open their nets, um, and open their minds a little bit more and really think outside the box as as a way to support these small businesses.
0: Emily, always great to talk to you. And, uh, thank you so much for, uh, for being on our, our podcast.
1: Great. Thank you so much, Rick. Thanks, Chris. I really appreciate it.
0: Okay. Take care, Emily.
1: Bye.